1: and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their Elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal Elders emerging. Hello friends, thank you again for joining us for Australian True Crime. Let's thank our patrons, patreon.com forward slash Pod. You will be getting a fresh episode every week over Christmas when everyone else is on their holes. You might even be on your holes, but you'll still get an Australian true crime episode, a fresh one, a new one, every week. No gaps, no breaks for you. Oh, I forgot to make these fonts bigger. Michelle Houghton, and you've given me a helpful pronunciation. Thank you, Michelle. Darian Reed, Emma Miller, Sab, S-A-B, love that. Celie Dragovich, love that. Brooke, Nicole Harrison, not that I don't love Brooke. I feel like I need to go back and say that. Brooke, love it. I used to have a friend called Brooke down the road. She told me how babies were made, but she was wrong. It involved fingers. Wrong, well, sort of wrong. I mean, it can. (laughs) Sorry, that is way off topic. Nicole Harrison, Emily Vincent. Elizabeth Mooney Carol Clark Eva Leopard. I never planned these but something fun always pops into my mind Lisa Smith Kimberly Lawson Tori Prowse <laughs> now I'm thinking about that day with Brooke I was about eight Emma Turner Ellen Hernandez that's why you've got to tell your kids the real reason the real way Matthew Beaumont otherwise a kid down the road will tell him something weird Claire Maddox Sarah Graham Christy! Steph Walker. Oh, is that my Steph? I wonder if that's our Steph. Abby B. Oh it's someone's Steph. Well, it's ours now, in it. Hi Steph. Maddie Sailor. Kezia. Kesia. It's K-E-Z-I-A-H. I love it, however you say it. Sarah Matoka. Gosh, that's a ripper. Sarah Matoka. Oh, I wish that was my name. Sarah Matoka. Hello, I'm Sarah Matoka. I'd always say the whole name if it were mine. Hello, Sarah Matoka. Ooh, Sarah Matoka. That's what I'd say when I was visiting. Joshua Wellington, Amanda Tows-Stott. Ooh, Tows-Stott. Kate Sinclair, Lisa Beer, Alyssa Lancaster, Sarah Lancaster. Sorry, that was my Queensland accent, Lancaster. Alyssa Lancaster, Sarah Moon, Carolyn Marshall, and a special cheerio to my friend Kim in London. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much for being patrons. Okay, on with the show. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children.
3: Oh, it's so cheap. It's getting into those those areas that traditionally it doesn't get in. You know, heroin's making a little bit of a comeback they starting to pick up more and more importations of heroin remember just before the cocaine era was heroin remember the people were shooting up and dying in the streets you know you had the smack express the train out to Cabramatta, where everyone would get their heroin because it was half the price of what it was in king's cross so we don't have that sort of open use of drugs at the moment but in parts of rural new south wales and the rest of the country it's terrible and even parts of outer parts of Sydney. I don't know how many murders I've had to write about over the last seven or eight years where it's been, ICE has been a factor. You know, you just go to the courts. You just go to the courts and sit in a court, any any court in Sydney, and go there for a day and you'll just come out and you'll, you know, know, predominantly everyone in that court system is there because of some sort of drug-related, but I think, variably, down it's ICE. These people killing their, their relatives
0: New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian made a surprise announcement a couple of weeks ago to the effect that the city's lockout laws are going to be lifted. She said it's time to enhance Sydney's nightlife. Of course there's been a lot of criticism about the lockout laws. A committee led by Sydney's Lord Mayor Clover Moore has heard evidence that almost half of Sydney's live music venues have closed in the five years the laws have been in effect. And apparently there's been a 10% drop in tourism among under 35s. So let's consider this week's episode a bit of a time capsule back to the good old days of King's Cross.
2: This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb.
0: The cross was so hectic in 1998 that this story has gone completely under the radar, even though it involves a major cocaine importation ring, sexy gangster porn star part-time models, a bomb addressed to one of them but picked up by the other, and a TV home shopping star having sex with another TV home shopping star in a police station before faking his own death and escaping Australia not to mention the most famous crooked cops in our modern history. To put that into context, there are six seasons of underbelly. At least four of them are completely unnecessary. Chopper Reed wrote 15 books about the same six stories. I just don't get it. Veteran Sydney journalist, Mark Murray has finally written a book about this case and these extraordinary people. Simone Chung, the beautiful, fearless, ambitious young woman with expensive tastes. Brett Boyd, her boyfriend and her equal in every way, equally ambitious, equally fearless and equally beautiful until the day in June 1998 when he bent down and picked up a parcel in the driveway of their home addressed to Simone. The package exploded in his hands disfiguring him for life. He was left with significant facial scarring. He lost his left eye, 80% of the vision in his right eye. He lost a significant amount of his hearing and he also lost a thumb. And last but not least, Roberto de Heredia, Brett Boyd's gym buddy, a male model who was breaking into television through infomercials on Foxtel. Foxtel. He was suspect number one in the parcel bombing case, and as soon as he was released from hospital, Brett Boyd started stalking him around Sydney with a machine gun. Is it any wonder Robert de Heredia faked his own death? Mark Murray spoke to all the major players who are still alive to bring us this wild story. And later in this episode, he'll tell us the real reason for the recent slowdown in violent crime in Sydney. I don't think it's quite what the Lord Mayor or the Premier are hoping to hear, and I know they're listening.
3: It's a story that kind of got lost in the ether, I think, soon after the Olympics, and royal commissions and and then the guy did a runner, so we never had a court case. So it just, it faded away. Then all the major players all went overseas. Simone, who, was, who the parcel bomb was sent to, um, she went overseas, and a lot of very scared people were really scared about what was going on at the time of King's Cross. It was kind of lawless around that time because all the crooked cops and the crooked had been undone by the Royal Commission. So there was this huge vacuum of both the gangsters and, and also the cops themselves were too busy Trying to get their, their own house in order. So there was this lawlessness up at, around King's Cross and Sydney. And that's when the western, southwestern Sydney um, gangs started to infiltrate the cross and the drug dealing.
0: I think it's a perfect time for this book right now too because so many people are complaining about the fact that the cross is dead. All we ever see on social media are these photos of King's Cross 10 years ago pumping and King's Cross now deserted. And so here's this book about this terrifying time in the cross when it was, you know, people could get shot and have letter bombs sent to them and one of those periods we now look back on so fondly, oddly, don't you think?
3: Yeah, yeah, I do. I spent a lot of time up there. Um, as a crime reporter, and in fact, I used to a lot with uh, the Kings Cross um, detectives who I'd later found out a lot of them were corrupt, and I had no idea. I was just a naive young guy from the Sydney suburbs who just thought whenever you went drinking with police from Kings Cross, you didn't have to pay. <laughs> um, and I really, really had no idea that how corrupt it was back then. This is just pre before uh, the Royal Commission exposed it all. And then, literally, the Royal Commission, I just started seeing all these police officers from King's Cross that I knew just being named relentlessly. Um, and as I said, at that time, the, the, the Bayers who ran the cross and had done for quite a while, with the protection of the police, they were also locked up. So it was wide open for someone like you know, Brett Boyd had these big plans to start dealing massive amounts of cocaine uh, with another guy called Leroy Stolzenheim and they thought that they could make it big. But at the same time, one of their good friends was Robert D. Heredia, a TV star. Now, there's no suggestion that he knew about the drugs, but and he claims he didn't. And these three guys were inseparable friends in the nightclub scene. Uh, and then, obviously, there's a the suggestion that there was a, a, a major drug ripoff that Brett had ripped off uh, possibly Leroy Stolzenheim and maybe some others and he was basically in hiding at the time when this bomb was sent to his girlfriend. And the reason it was um, addressed to Simone was that was because they believed he would pick it up. He wouldn't have picked up anything addressed to him because at that time he was absolutely paranoid. He'd put sensors in his around his house, which is in suburban Belrose. He moved to a really you know innocuous sort of suburb in, in Sydney, uh, far away from the cross because he was petrified that someone was out to get him. And i not sleep quite rightly.
0: I never even thought of that because I was reading, thinking, why was the bomb sent to her?
3: Yes, yeah, was Simone, who herself at the time, and she'll admit this readily, uh, at the time wasn't the world's nicest person. She was uh, a highly paid escort. Yeah, but there's Jane, nothing
0: wrong with oh, being a highly paid no, escort. That doesn't no, mean she wasn't a nice person.
3: No,
0: no, Some I of my best she... friends are highly paid escorts. So Mark, total... what are you saying?
3: <laughs> she thought it was... She had, you know, upset a lot of people. She yeah. had a pretty bad cocaine habit herself. Um, so, the, you know, there were some people that might have wanted to get Simone and the police looked at that, but they quickly discounted that and then really honed in on Robert De Radio, the TV star, who at the time was going out with Ross Switzer, who does a lot of TV info commercials.
2: From the Easy Bam ads. Oh, yeah. The cleaning That's ads, right. Yeah.
3: Yeah, in fact, like she was—you know—she was, you know, she was uh, kind of half-provided him with an alibi back in ninety ninety-eight. But you know, after he, he was, uh, left Australia, and one of the the more, one of the wildest stories about this is, after he was arrested and he was in jail for a while, and then he was given bail. The day he was due out, and he was to be released from Randwick um, Police Station, Brett Boy, who had lost an eye and had a patch over his eye, lost a thumb, had limited vision in the other eye, was caught outside Randwick Police Station with a bulletproof vest, a machine gun, uh, waiting for Dieter ready to come out so it's a killing. I mean, I tell you, I wouldn't have wanted to be around in that facility because I don't think he would have had a terribly good shot. Oh. You know? <laughs> so I
0: tell you, yeah. I, I knew this. Th- these guys lived such a, a, a life that, To them, the way they talk about it in your book, it seems that they found it, they thought it was quite normal, a lot of the things that they were doing and a lot of the ways they were living. And to the reader is like, you what? Like even basic stuff, like when Simone talks about when she met Brett and she's like, yeah, well, I I remember it because I just had my baby and uh, I said to a friend of mine, yeah, bring that hot guy around that you've been telling me about.
3: I know. To the house that she
0: shared with the father of the baby. And you're reading it thinking okay, yeah, most of us aren't dating when we've got a newborn at home. <laughs> you know, like even stuff like that, you go, wow, this was a different lifestyle.
3: It was a totally different world these people live in. And I got a bit of an entree into it because Brett's best friend, which I, it took me, it wasn't until 20 years later I found out, it was John Ibrahim and met after. And uh, when he was in hospital, the first person to visit Brett was John Ibrahim. They were good, good mates. Um, and then also I found out that they bugged uh, Brett Boyd's hospital room, which he supposedly is the victim, and the were bugging him to try and find out what was going on. So, I mean, there all these little incidentals that I picked up, you know, years later uh, were really quite amazing. They kind of... And, and I learned a lot right in this book. I've been around 30, you know, 35 years as a crime reporter in Sydney, and in the last three years of research, you've been involved in this book... I think I've learned more than I did
0: in the last twenty years. Wow! Yeah, Sydney's a wacky no. town. From oh, I, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And Simone's Certainly in yes. jail. You went to visit her, and she's sort of—is that photo of her in jail because she looks stunning? Where she sort of apologises no. to you and says, "Oh, sorry, I don't look great, but I've I haven't got any makeup on or something."
3: She looks no. She this is uh, she's got out now. Oh great! She only got out about uh, four weeks ago. Good stuff. Um, she you know, spent a long time. She was inside for about seven and a half years. She wasn't just a person who got caught, do, you know, dealing a few drugs. She ran a drug empire from LA. A very, very smart girl. Wow. Uh, so she uh, she left the country. I think maybe she was scared of recriminations. Was a model over, the bikini model in LA, but didn't quite earn enough money for the way Simone wanted to live back then. Um, and she ran this major drug, Drug uh, drug syndicate, and she ended up getting arrested here, and she was sentenced for eleven years. But she's behaved so well in jail, she's been allowed out. Um, she's now attempting to to rebuild her life and, and go out and tell people, don't fall for these bad boys, don't fall for the glamour world. You know, it's going to be really good fun for a little while, but when you when you come down. It, you hit you hit, the earth uh, very, very hard.
2: We seem to see that in Sydney mostly, don't we? We see these like real big characters flashing their fake boobs and their I like. I just think their gangsters and... are better looking than ours, Em. Yeah.
0: I think <laughs> that. Be, yeah. To be honest, Mark, <laughs> this... our Melbourne gangsters are just not that hot. Like oh, uh, no. yours are. Nowhere. No way. Yeah.
2: No, a lot better. We're, we're, we're
0: very good,
3: you know. Sydney Crooks, it's the centre. It's you know? just, yeah. a yeah. high standard. They're very. That's the thing about this book. Everybody in it is good looking. That's what yeah. I was going
2: to say. That it involves really good looking people. Mm. What What TV was Robert in?
3: He was on a um, Fox TV, mainly doing the shopping centre oh, uh,
2: shopping. That's show, how he show. knew Roz.
0: That's how he knows Roz. Okay. But that, yeah, that, it. yes,
3: that's mm. how they met. He um, he would repeatedly say in court a couple of times how he was very good friends with uh, the late Don Lane, who won low gold logies. Um, so he was. They were mixing in those worlds. Well. He was married to, at one stage, to a, a woman called Lisa Tonelli, whose brother was Mark Tonelli, a, a Olympic swimmer. Um, so I said, the the the, the cast of characters like this, I decided you couldn't make up for a Hollywood script.
0: It's all tits and teeth. Your underworld. Oh, it's fabulous. It
3: yeah. It is. And then in Open Court, just <laughs> when they retried them. Uh, poor old Rod Swisser, who was very, very brave to, to, to take yeah. this down 17 years later, and say, you know what? I really didn't tell the truth all the way back then. You know, I mm. believe Robert was was deeply involved. And then the defence hit her and said, you know, you say that you're scared of this man. Didn't you have sex with him in manly police station while he was in custody?
0: Oh, oh.
3: And she admitted that she did. It was a pretty cruel thing to do, but they wanted to try and discredit her. Yeah. So, and she turned around and, and and they said, Well, you know, you, you don't talk about this much and she said, Well, it wasn't very memorable, which
2: I, don't, <laughs> it I, don't, was I don't, think
3: Yeah, and there was Robert D. Hurley sitting over there in the, in the, you know, listening to her basically um, having a go at him that way. But he ended up getting acquitted. He no, they found him not guilty 17 years later, despite the fact the DNA on the stamp that was on the bomb matched his, despite the fact there was a fingerprint found uh, on an Australia Post envelope that was used also in getting Brett to, get to pick up the bomb.
0: Well, explain to us how he even fits in. We haven't even discussed how. So you've got this glamour couple. You've got Simone who's hot as hell and she's rattling around the house with her DJ boyfriend. She's got a newborn, so she says, right, it's time for me to get back dating. And then she says to her friends, come "Come over. And they've told her about this guy who's so hot. So she says, oi get him around here. I want to meet him. So he comes around, they start dating and then they have big plans. They've got the same ambitions. She says, that's what she really liked about him. They sort of shared ambitions and dreams. And so they got moving on their drug empire and all that sort of stuff. Where does Robert de Heredia, the TV guy from the shopping channel, where does he fit into all of this? And we'll hear the answer to that question after the break. Coming up on Australian True Crime, veteran Sydney journalist and author of Hate Mail, Mark Mori, brings us up to date on Sydney's crime scene today. But first, how?
1: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
0: Did clean-cut aspiring TV star Robert DeHeredia come to be suspect number one in the parcel bombing attempted murder of Brett Boyd, an accused underworld enforcer, who would end up stalking him around Sydney armed to the teeth with automatic weapons?
3: He was at City Gym, which seemed to be the hub of all activity back then. It was a twenty-four-hour a gym, yeah. well yeah. before everything was twenty-four hours. Mm. Um, and he met uh, Brett Boyd there and Le- Brett, and another guy called Leroy Stolfenhine, who was Brett's best friend. And they just became very good friends. Now, in the court, the, the motive that they suggested that why DiHaredi attempted to kill Brett is that Brett had ripped him off for $80,000 that he'd given him to start up a porn internet business with Simone as the guest star, as the starry role. And that, that was why Brett told the police, he said, oh, look, he wants that money back off me and I wasn't going to give it to him. That was the motive. And now DiIrenio denied that totally. He said, look, I had nothing to do with it. There were other suggestions, Sean beliefs, belief, um, that there was a big falling out because of jealousy and Brett apparently went and destroyed a house that the three of them shared up at the Hawkesbury. Um, but there were drugs there that Leroy had perhaps put there and Brett went and ripped ripped it all off and then burned the house down. So, you know, no honour among thieves, that was one theory. So there's a lot of theories that have been presented that the police only could work with what they had. They were told by Brett Boyd and supported by Leroy, who is dead. Brett is dead. He committed suicide in 2010. Um... I don't know if you've seen those you know, He After the, the bombing, he became quite an imposing figure around Sydney because he he, he was a, a huge man, incredibly. He got his fitness back even after the bomb. And uh, he would be wandering around town with his pouch. He was like a modern-day pirate.
2: And his glove.
3: And his glove. Yeah.
0: His face yeah. was a bit messed up. He had a scarred was, face. And so it was yeah. a very different look to the pre-bomb look, wasn't it?
3: It was. And he just became obsessed with trying to find who was responsible. He believed it was D. Heredia. D. Heredia, you know, obviously fled the country saying he'd feared for his life. And D. Heredia, the way he left the country, showed that he was an incredibly uh, resourceful man as well. It wasn't just a, a couple of drops of blood found in an abandoned, an, an abandoned car. He'd got someone to help a nurse to draw blood over a, a period of time, so he had quite a stash. So that when it... When he put it in the car, the police didn't go, oh, looks like someone's cut themselves. They're saying the amount of blood loss here would result in someone being dead. So there's some pretty smart, smart uh, plans went into that. Um, and then he, he was on the run for 17, 18 years. Good before. Lord. He was over... He had about five different names. He was in Spain, predominantly, living, uh, uh, living a very, very good life. So I think he was saying he was a financial... Trader, well, and he lived on the coast. Did he marry children? He married. Uh, he had a child, Cecilia Yates, another Sydney woman. Um, so, and he was flicking back, backwards and forwards between there and England under all these false passports, until a couple of detectives from Sydney found the old box, and they were moving, moving stations, and they see this box, and it's the old bombing. And at the same time, a, another detective had run into. A guy who was ready to retire, who said, "You know there's this case that I worked on in ninety eight, you should have a look at it." And the guys opened the box up, um, got in touch with the authorities over in England, and eventually Haredi uh, was arrested when he went to England under a false stain. They went over and brought him back, and you know three years later he eventually beat beat the charges.
0: Wow. What was going on in Brett Boyd's life when he committed suicide? Is that is that surprising to you? It seems... No. Oh, well, really?
3: Because he... You've got to remember, this was a a, a highly ambitious man, mm. highly motivated. Yeah. Uh, he was incredibly good-looking. Mm. Yeah. He was a male... He was a part-time mo- model as well as a, a fitness instructor. His looks were gone. His dreams were shattered. He was... Inc- he felt... Everybody was looking at him. He had a disfigured face. Um, John Ibrahim said to me, he said, I watched him just disintegrate. He he started smoking heavily. became so depressed. And on top of the fact that what had happened to him physically, not to have the person he believed had done it to him, not come to justice. Um, Well, first of all, he wanted to hand out his own justice, which was with the machine gun that he was going to kill him with. But then when the law failed to carry it out, as far as he was concerned, it just drove him to distraction and eventually killed himself in, I think, 2010 on Australia Day.
0: Was he still using a lot of cocaine and stuff at that time?
3: I think he had, uh, he had slowed right down on that, but um, I'm not sure about painkillers pain because he went right. through, like, 20-odd operations. He really he In fact, he, he recuperated for two years at Iberham's house over there in, in Dover Heights. Um, before he eventually started living in Elaine. At the Elaine apartments, he still lived a very good life. But where his money came from, I don't know. There were rumours that he was involved in a bit of standover.
0: I'm sure there's always employment for a bloke like Brett.
3: Well, yes. Well, he would have imagined if he decided to turn up at your club and say, I want you to give me money. I think I'd give it to him.
2: I would give him money.
3: So it was, yeah, that was eventually what happened to you. And that was another problem for, for the court case. Um, and one person said to me, the only way you're going to find out what happened is to have a seance, you know. Because um, Leroy, the man who pointed the finger at D. Heredia, is, was dead. He died um, from um, a, a cancer in 2006. He was dead. Brett Boyd was dead. Simone said she was too drug-affected to remember anything really around that time, so she, she didn't even give evidence. Um, Ros Swisser had changed her her story, so that was what the defence really hung in on. So it was, you know, he, the police really thought, and so did I, that with DNA fingerprints, de heredia fleeing the country when he was going to have to face court, that... They would have had a good chance of success, but that was not to be. So the jury threw it out um, in about six hours. There had been a trial about a year and a half earlier, which was a hung trial. Um, And then they had a retrial, and they came in after six hours, found him not guilty. So for all intents and purposes, it's still an unsolved crime.
2: So what's he doing now? I know he was escorted from Australia. Was
3: he? Yes, he was deported because he fled the country on a false passport. Oh. He was he was not allowed to come back. So he's over there in England and last I knew him he was living at his mother's place in London with his, his mother um, trying to figure out you know whether he, whether he's going to go back to Spain. I'm not sure what he's going to do. He doesn't talk to me. I attempted about three, four times. I even ran Villawood Detention Centre a number of times before he, he was deported. But he... I got messages via a couple of his cellmates, but he never he never returned the calls. But he did go on sixty minutes, and just told the world that he was totally innocent and had no idea why someone tried to set him up.
0: Mm. And isn't John Ibrahim such a fascinating character?
3: <laughs> yes, he is. And as I said, I never, in the book, uh, I said how I'd never had anything to do with John Ibrahim, apart from a few letters from him and his family members. Lawyers threatening to sue everything I wrote about mm-hmm. them. Um, so I was surprised when he actually, when he found out I was writing a book about Brett, that he agreed to talk to me. Um, and I, was, I think he was a bit wary, but I, in the end, I found him you know, so helpful. Hey. Um, we are, and he, as I said, it was this halfway through, About after about 20 minutes, we were just having a coffee and chatting. And he's very, very personable. And then he said, um, do you have a driver's license? Current driver's license. I said, "Yeah, I do." He said, "I can have, have a look," <laughs> and I passed it to him, and he just put his phone out, and went kitchen <laughs> took a photo of it. And I'm thinking, "Yeah, now he knows where I live." <laughs> oh <laughs> and wow! He, said, and he, he just looked at me. And he said, "I have trust issues," and I think <laughs> it was it was, um, it was almost like a little party trick that he does. Yeah. No, so but he is fascinating. And as I never said, he only agreed because he he wanted to say that while he was. this other side of Brett that is being portrayed as a, a menacing type of figure with guns and everything, he saw him and found him as an incredibly entertaining, very, very funny, confident person, and they spent quite a bit of time together. He never worked for him. He was just his friend.
2: He looked um, like a fun-loving guy in the photos, you know, before the, the parcel bomb, like he looked like just a guy who's loving life. Yeah, as a young guy, Looking, yeah, those you know, photos. good-looking well, guy.
0: Hmm.
3: Well, you can imagine a really good-looking guy. You're running around town. You're earning lots of money, yeah. legally and illegally. Uh, and as I said, Sydney was it was party central. And I I, I was in New York for the uh, for a stint. I came back to Sydney, and Sydney Sydney partied a lot harder than New York. It was twenty-four seven. You could go out around the clock. Whereas even in New York, it shut down at four four a.m. and Brett was part of that life. Um, Simone was part of that life. Uh, And there was money being made all over the place. And as I said, there was a police force more obsessed with finding cooks within the police force than cooks on the street. (laughs) And they were making hay while the sun was shining, a lot of those guys.
0: And it's funny, the way you just said that John Ibrahim described Brett is the way people who know Ibrahim describe him. To me, I don't know if you yeah. found him that way. People describe John Ibrahim as, you know, I know a lot of people think he's, uh, you know, this and that, and I'm not going to repeat what that is, but actually he's very personable, very fun, very funny guy.
3: Yeah, oh, hilarious. You know, I was with him last night at the Sydney Crime Writers Festival because mm-hmm. he won uh, an award for, for his book, Last King of the Cross, Yeah, and he presented it to the – because it was the first award and he presented the, the award last night to um, – Hedley Thomas from Teacher's Pet. Oh, love Hedley. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so I got a photo of Hedley and John together and he, he's very proud of that book. And as you said, he's, he, he read that book and it's not a gangster book just as such, but it, behind it is this guy incredibly driven to succeed. And it just so happens it was nightclubs where I think he was surrounded by a lot of unsavoury characters. And I think he would say, Had he been in the TV world or the (laughs) trucking world, wherever, he would have owned the TV station. That's just the way he—he was the way he's wired. Incredibly ambitious. Um, But so I was very grateful for that. He helped me, and Simone going and visiting her in jail Mm. opened my eyes, and she she explained a whole lot of what was happening in and around Sydney around the time and in that world. Um, So it's quite extraordinary, and even. The, one of D. Heredia's girlfriends was a girl called Camilla, who, before the bomb, he had dated. And lo and behold, I, she was in court. And then just recently, Damien Flowers, uh, one of Australia's great racehorse trainers, has just been arrested and charged for importation of cocaine. And his partner is Camilla, who was that of Robert D. Heredia. Um, so it just shows you Sydney is such a small...
0: Small old world.
3: Circle. Yeah, it really is, you know.
0: Do you think that Sydney's transformation into this ghost town after dark, <laughs> yeah. is that symptomatic of a sort of conservative turn that Australia's taken? Is that just me?
3: No, I, I, well, I think um, Sydney really just has lost, lost the plot there for a little while. We're trying hard to get it back. But it was party town, you know, as I said, I... I would be in New York. And even when i tell them about the crimes, that, you know, they, they would, like, almost be a little bit condescending. Oh, I must be pretty, pretty exciting for you to be here in New York reporting on crime. And I went, yeah, well, you know, I did report on the biking massacre where we had several guys just shot in a car park at a pub. And then we actually, you know, we had an assassination of John Newman, of one of our MPs. Oh, by the way, here yeah, we had an undercover cop. Uh, set up and shot by another cop called Roger Rogerson. And then and they went, wow, you do have some crime down there, don't you? And I went, yeah, we do. And on top of that, we were open, Sydney was open 24-7, as I said. And now it, I think we've just sanitised it too much. And as you said, it, it seems to be a sweeping movement throughout Australia of not just of of mm-hmm. nightclubs and everything, but, you know, not girls aren't allowed to... Where the bikinis between to show what rounded is at a boxing match, we saw. You know? That's that sort of conservatism. I'm finding it. it's really restrictive on how our young people are going to grow up.
2: A lot of people talk about um, New York in that way that New York's been so sanitized that you know, they talk almost fondly of the really hectic 70s and <laughs> 80s.
3: I talk fondly now of, of Sydney in the 80s and the 90s, even early 2000s. Um, but it We did have to bring it back. You know, King's Cross was a little bit out of control. It was New Year's Eve every Friday and Saturday night. Yeah. Um, And I talked to the coppers up there and they just went, it's just too hectic, you know. It's just there's too many people in a a small plate, part of town, you know. Everyone was just there and everybody was off their heads. So... Now I think we've just distributed it a little bit around the suburbs
0: okay well, that's what I was going to ask you as a crime reporter, do you think there is less crime in Sydney or do you think it's just in different places?
3: I think no, there is there is less crime hmm. um even but there's because there's there's a, a calmness in the underworld at the moment because they are all making so much money like no one's <laughs> they're not fighting over terror and that's that's been told to me by by the crooks and by organised crime. What, out of, what,
0: what are they making money out, out of? Out cocaine, of cocaine,
3: methamphetamine, cocaine. Hmm. The amount of money being made, is just ridiculous amount of drugs in this city is off the Richter scale. Like never seen before. Um, but because all the groups are all making money, they're not fighting as much. Um, and there was, the police have been very good. They've taken off a, a couple of Killing, there was a killing crew, literally out there, going out and just doing hits, for, you know, for, for drug dealers and everything like that.
0: What, like a freelance freelance crew? Yeah, freelance,
3: f- yes, freelance crew. And I can't really talk too much about it because there's still some um, court cases pending. But the police locked up this crew, and and there are some others. So. We haven't really had a, a gangland hit here for about eighteen months. and the last one was Mick Howie, who was a former up, and up But before that, there were, you know, there were a good half a dozen uh, of gangland executions and murders around around Sydney. But it's all calmed down now because the police have taken off uh, taken off the streets quite a few of the main players, and the ones that are left have figured out. That we're all making money. Let's just keep it nice and calm, and that way, the you know the police can't have anything to get onto us. You know, as well as that, the bikies have been crushed, literally crushed by New South Wales police. So they have to go to, they have to go down to Canberra to have their meeting you now. And they put their they put their bikes in trucks, and then get down there and then put on get all dressed up as bikies again. because you know? they're not allowed to do it in Sydney, it's kind of like going to fancy dress parties.
0: Um, or Queensland, right? So they're not
3: allowed to go to York, Queensland or Sydney. No, or Melbourne. Mm. Um, I did go. The, so the um, banditos had their last big run was in Tasmania, and it was hilarious. I was on that ferry going over there with the... not with them, but I was. I knew they were going, <laughs> and they all went on there in different bits and pieces. And the minute they were in the that the the ferry going over to Tasmania, they all went into their their rooms, came out dressed as Bandita. (laughs) then got on their bikes and roamed around and had a big meeting in Tasmania then came back and put on their civilian clothes and drove off again because they knew that if they rode as a group in New South Wales to get down to Melbourne they were going to be pounced on. So that's helped keep a lot of of violence off Sydney. The bikings are really being watched closely. But so crime is not is down at the moment, but not drugs. And I think the big thing is that in five, six years' time, when we see all the mental health effects of all oh, the drug yeah. addiction going on, then we'll start seeing. And we're starting to see that sort of problem. All these ice crimes, ice murders. I don't know how many how many murders I've had to write about over the last seven, or eight years, with, where it's been ice has been a factor. You just go to the courts and sit in a court, any any court in Sydney and go there for a day and you'll just come out and you'll, you have, know, you know, predominantly everyone in that court system is there because of some sort of drug-related, but I think invariably down it's us.
0: Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.
3: up at your club and say i want you to give me money i think i'd give it
2: to him i would give him money
1: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available.